This episode of the Australia in the World podcast is produced with the support of the Australian Institute of International Affairs, an independent, non-profit organisation promoting interest in and understanding of international affairs in Australia by providing a forum for discussion and debate. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers themselves and not the institutional views of the AIIA. Hello and welcome back to the Australia in the World podcast. My name is Darren Lim and I'm here with Alan Gingell and we are delighted to bring you a special episode in which we interview Dennis Richardson. And as you will hear, Alan takes the lead in this interview, but I have plenty of questions that I jump in with as well. So let's take it away. Well, I've uh, seized the microphone from uh, Darren for the first time in this uh, series because we've got in on the podcast today one of Australia's most distinguished public servants and a very old friend of mine. Now, Dennis is uh, is uh, doing a thumbs down, but he is, in fact, the only person ever to have served in the positions of Chief of Staff to the Prime Minister, in his case, Bob Hawke, Director General of Security, that is, Head of ASIO, at the time of the 9-11 attacks, Australian Ambassador to the United States and Secretary of the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade and then Secretary of the Defence Department. He also worked as uh, head of the International Division in the Prime Minister's Department, as Deputy Secretary in the Department of Immigration and had diplomatic postings in Nairobi, Jakarta and Port Moresby, none of them at the glamorous end of the diplomatic circuit, but very important to Australian interests. Uh, in retirement, the government keeps drawing on Dennis's experience and he's now conducting a major review into all of Australia's intelligence and security legislation for a report which will be delivered after the next federal election. I should also note that among other things he's doing, Dennis is on the board of the Canberra Raiders rugby league team, a true passion, and if only that passion could translate into success on the field, but next year. Uh, Dennis, you and I have known each other for a long time. We were both 21 when we arrived in Canberra to start our careers as what had now be called graduate trainees in what was then called the Department of External Affairs, and that's a few years ago now. Over the course of the intervening period, we must have put in many hundreds of hours of discussion about the subject of this very podcast, uh, Australia in the World. So there are endless places we could begin, but I want to start, I thought, by comparing then and now. You've seen Australia act in the world from so many different uh, perspectives over the course of a long career. What do you see as the principal differences between the way Australia behaved and acted at the beginning of your time in the international policy area and the way it is now? So what, what's, what's changed? Um, Alan, look, uh, thanks, thanks very much for that. I think a degree of confidence more confidence now in the way we engage in and with the world uh, than in the 1960s. Like everything else, you get a lot of continuity and differences. Uh, I remember when I came to Canberra to for the second round of interviews to for for external affairs, we were given we were given an essay to write, and the essay topic was to discuss the tension between Australia's geography and Australia's history. It is remarkable how that discussion has continued uh, down through the years and remains very active 
uh, today. It's one of those endless uh, subjects which we may be, which we will be talking about in another fifty years. Where in nineteen sixty nine, when we came to Canberra, from memory, Australia belonged to the United Nations. Uh, the South Pacific Forum may have just been getting underway or it might have been formed in the early 70s. I just forget now. The Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting met about every two to four years and that was it. There was no APEC. There was no G20 leaders meeting. There was no East Asia Summit. So the degree of Australia's engagement in the region has multiplied enormously in the intervening period and our engagement globally has just increased uh, a notch or two and with that has gone a certain degree of confidence. Equally, going back to continuity, in 1969 we were involved in the Vietnam War. In 2003 we were involved in the war in Iraq. And we still have troops today or uh, armed, armed forces personnel in both Afghanistan uh, and Iraq. Some things change, some things never change. Of course, the region has changed enormously, China being the obvious. On this theme of, of change, I wanted to dig into the practice of policymaking. Um, and I guess this question, I would frame it as a question about the centralisation of decision making in Canberra. And this comes out of the recent October Senate estimates hearings that happened last week in which some information came out around the decision um, by Prime Minister Scott Morrison to announce a review of Australia's policy regarding the capital of, of Israel, potentially moving the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. Now, it came out in those hearings that our ambassador to Indonesia, Gary Quinlan, had spoken with Indonesia's foreign minister, Retno Marudi, the night prior to the public announcement, but that later that night... Marudi herself sent some, I understand, angry text messages over the secure messaging service WhatsApp. Now, this isn't a question about the merits of that potential decision. It's a question about the practice of foreign policy making. Because to me, the fact that foreign ministers can text each other directly in the middle of the night on a secure messaging system is, is quite remarkable. But the question is, does it, does it mean anything? Is it significant? Do you think foreign policy is becoming more centralised where foreign ministers, defence ministers, and indeed the prime minister can exercise more direct control from capitals and, and potentially taking some um, decision-making away from bureaucracies and experts? Oh, well, they can certainly exercise more central control. They, they have the means to do that. But again, it's not unique. I don't think Australia's decision to go into Vietnam in the 1960s was necessarily a paradigm of virtue in terms of governance, uh, I think it was probably quite a heavily centralised decision. However, there's always a danger in people like Alan and I talking about what was and what is. In 1969, I was a bag carrier. In fact, I was always a bag carrier. <laughs> it doesn't matter how senior you get in government, you always carry bags. But your knowledge of policy making when you're when you're a trainee is very different to your own personal experience as you go up the ladder, so to speak. So, very often, 
a memory like mine, going back to 69, can be quite flawed in terms of the way things actually were. I remember uh, in the early 70s being in a deputy secretary's office uh, one time and across the car park was walking a an officer who at that point was on the personal staff of the foreign minister. And as he was walking across the car park, this deputy secretary said, he will get his comeuppance when he gets back here. People talk about ministerial advisers today as though they have a role that they didn't have before. Centralised decision-making, I think, has always been a feature of the most important decisions in, in government. However, foreign ministers can now engage in personal communication more quickly than what they used to. In Papua New Guinea, when I was on posting in the mid-70s, the coaxial cable had just been put in between Port Moresby and Canberra. There was one telephone in the High Commission, uh, in the in the Deputy High Commissioner's office, and that telephone could revolutionary ring Canberra direct. Mm. Now... We all carry devices in our pockets which enable us to ring anywhere in the world direct. Some leaders do it a lot. I think uh, Prime Minister Turnbull, uh, famous for ringing up people anywhere around the world at any time. Prime Minister Rudd, similarly. Mm. Well, I think I know uh, how you're going to answer this related question, which also came out of the estimates hearing, which was the timing of the, uh, informing... the the bureaucracy of the decision. So uh, the Secretary of uh, the Department of Foreign Affairs, Francis Adamson, is, learns the day prior to the announcement. Um, and I believe the, the, the Chief of Defence found out that Monday as well, prior to the Tuesday announcement. And so the question here was, what was interesting to me was the lack of consultation to the bureaucracy. And the question I had was, is this something that you think is, is different from back in the past? You know, are no. we seeing more unpredictability because of this willingness uh, to... Put it this way. I don't believe governments have ever considered that they have an ironclad obligation to consult with public servants. When decision-making is working properly, you do go through the normal processes. In this case, I would note that Prime Minister Morrison did not announce a decision. It was a review. He said he was announcing a review. Now, given the particular electoral context in which he made that uh, statement, I don't think there was ever a chance in hell that he was going to consult with the bureaucracy. And uh, you, can, you can think of it, what's your life, mm. but that's life. Let me just uh, press a bit on this. One, one of the things that I think about from time to time is whether after the revolutionary change that President Trump has brought to the business of US policymaking, that is tweeting from his bedroom at uh, four o'clock in, uh, in the morning, in a way that his officials often clearly uh, have, no, have no idea which way he's uh, going to do. And I think to myself, is it ever going to be possible to revert to the sort of golden system that we, we've been talking about? Or will it now be essential for every American president and before long 
Australian uh, uh, Prime Minister and so on to do that uh, that constant commentary on the uh, on the passing parade, which inevitably has policy consequences. Wise people won't comment endlessly on the passing parade, and they will resist the temptation, and they'll be uh, considered in what they uh, when they do or don't engage. However, uh, if you wave an election in front of any politician <laughs> from either side, then all bets are off in terms of the way they may conduct themselves. Yeah, and that's certainly been the case with the US president. I, I mean, our, our, our processes are, are quite... Probably the best process for a difficult issue that I ever saw was the decision by the Hawke government to launch an international campaign to ban mining in Antarctica. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, Treasurer Keating was a big advocate of that. And the government took the decision to move from supporting a treaty that was going to ban it, I think, for 50 years or whatever, to a complete ban on it. It would have permitted... uh, it would have set out the conditions under which mining could have taken place. They would have been very difficult conditions, but the assumption was that if you were to go through a certain uh, process, you would, in the end, get to mining, and this was a reversal of that. Yes, and uh, we were a long way down the track in negotiating that treaty. The matter went to Cabinet in the formal, with a formal Cabinet submission. From memory, I think... Just about every department supported signing the treaty. I was in Prime Minister and Cabinet at the time. We supported the signing of the treaty. DFAT did, Treasury did and others. Despite our knowledge of the Prime Minister's position and where the government was at, we did a coordinating Cabinet recommending uh, that we support the treaty and not go with the ban. I got a telephone call from the relevant Prime Minister's advisor, Craig Emerson, who subsequently became a minister in the the Labor government. And Craig and I had a discussion where we disagreed. Craig put in the department's minute to the Prime Minister. He told me what the covering note would be from him and I took notes at that Cabinet meeting where Prime Minister Hawke and Treasurer Keating led the charge and they and they took the decision. And uh, there was no upset by the Prime Minister, no upset by ministers that officials outrageously had a different view and... Uh, That's probably the most contentious decision that I've seen go through a government in a very ordered, considered way where no one lost any skin, everyone respected one another's uh, differences. Now, as I said uh, before, Dennis, you you are one of only two people and the other was the legendary Sir Arthur Tang to have been head of both the Foreign Affairs Department and the the Defence Department. You uh, surprised me once by saying that you regarded the you thought that the second job, Secretary of 
defence was easier than the first, although it's obviously a much larger organisation. Can you talk about that and the differences you see between the two I principal can't, agencies? I can't remember why I said that. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me... Let what, me what did I say? What, what you said, what you said... Was, was I drinking? Uh, no, you, it was, it was uh, yeah. uh, coffee, so you're probably on the okay. green tea or something. It can't be... Uh, blamed for uh, for that. I think you. I think the, your view was the defence was huge and uh, complex in its administration, but the issues were quite simple. The issues that came to you yeah. as secretary were fewer <laughs> in number than the things that would pass across your desk in um, in yeah. DFAT. Yeah. I, look, uh, that is right. I, I think in broad terms, DFAT is a more dynamic. The the dynamic of policy in DFAT is quicker and more varied than in defence. In defence, you're thinking in broader strategic terms, whereas in DFAT, you have policy issues coming coming at the government every day on which you've you've got to have a view. You just can't say... I'll take that on notice. The the minister and and the and the foreign minister by and large is required to be more out there uh, than the uh, than the defence minister. So the policy dynamics are certainly different in DFAT than what they are uh, in defence. Even though clearly the management dimensions of the job um, in in defence are significantly bigger than the management dimensions. Uh, in DFAT, although I would note that with Austrade now rolled into DFAT, uh, etc., uh, Francis Adamson has got as, uh, as 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 big a job as anyone. I have a question about the intersection, I guess, of the two issue domains: yeah. foreign affairs and defence. One thing that I notice is that more and more foreign policy issues seem to be viewed through a security frame. So this is the idea of yeah. the securitisation of foreign policy. This is happening in, in discourses, you know, what we read, but also I personally am noticing defence, home affairs and even Prime Minister and Cabinet exercising influence over issue areas that once were more within DFAT's purview. Do you agree that there is a trend towards securitisation? And if so, is it, you know, what are your well, thoughts I, on that? Well, I think it reflects uh, the time in which we live. Uh, I think given the dynamic between the US and China, uh, given the given the rhythm of the region today, I think uh, a security lens is going to be inevitable. Mm -hmm. Add to that counter-terrorism. Add to that the blending of foreign and domestic in terms of some of the challenges. And that's, that's, that's inevitable. I don't know whether PM&C and other departments have any greater say than what they have previously. The Secretary's Committee on National Security has been around for a long time uh, and Alan worked as head of the International Division of, of Prime Minister and Cabinet, as did I, and I don't think ourselves or others who have occupied that job 30 years ago or more were backward in coming forward in respect of our views. And the Prime Minister's office uh, 
has always been very strong in the shaping of foreign policy. I mean, one of the people in the Prime Minister's office prior to Allen was a fellow called John Bowen, who was Bob Hawke's foreign policy advisor from 1983 until about 89 or so. And John played it very quietly. And many people today might ask who John Bowen was. Well, he was one of the great shapers of foreign policy under Hawke. In an area in which I do a lot of research, what's often called geoeconomics, the intersection of economics and security, you have these two camps who view the same issue, often with regards to China and, and our economic relationship with them, through such strikingly different lenses. The economists who focus on the economic benefits and the security uh, folks who obviously are concerned with national security issues. And the two sides don't ever seem to be able to talk on the same you know, wavelength uh, because they prioritise such different issues, they have such different frames. Is there any hope that we can have to, to have a sort of a, a, be on the same page and have a conversation? Yeah, there, uh, over time. But the, if you take Treasury, Treasury's interest in China was enormously slow in developing. Treasury did not have an area of their department devoted to China until about 2010, 2011. That's right, gosh. Um, I remember getting a call from the Secretary of of Treasury to ask whether we could lend them someone in terms of that area. This is when you are in DFAT. Yeah, Yeah. uh, when I was in DFAT. Um, uh, DFAT's uh, China has been pretty basic in terms of foreign policy considerations for decades. It's, it's, it, it was developing as an economic issue. You know, uh, Bob Hawke being on top of the mountain in Western Australia with the Chinese Premier and whatever. Uh, that goes back 30 years. But that was, uh, that, was, that was pretty new. I don't think Treasury put anyone into Beijing until about 10 years ago, and maybe 12 years ago, I, I don't know. But So there's been a um, disjunction mm-hmm. between, in respect to the historical context, I think the rise of China economically, I think, I don't think necessarily caught people by surprise. People forget that in the late 80s, the then government commissioned a report by Ross Garneau. Mm. And what was the what was the title of that report? Northeast Asian Ascendancy. That was thirty years ago. I used to remind Americans of that. I don't think the rise of China impacted on our psychology in quite the same way as it did in the US, where I think it 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 there was a surprise in the US in a way in which it would be wrong to say we had long anticipated, but certain people, including gifted economists like Ross Garno, saw it coming. There's an issue going around the sort of wonky people who uh, listen to podcasts like, like this about the structure of Australia's decision making for dealing with these issues. Do you have a, uh, a view on that or do you think the issue is not the structure that we have, that is the government machinery and, uh, and so on, but the way we do it, or do you think there is a structural problem? Wherever you've got a big issue like this and people can't agree, what they end up focusing on, some bright spark 
decides that the issue is structural. The easiest thing in the world to deal with is structure. If, if structure was the problem, bloody easy, wave a wand, change the structure and you've got a perfect outcome. The issue is simply inherently difficult and challenging. I think by and large, the structures in government work pretty well. You can play around with them here and there, but I don't think they go to the centre of, of what the issues are. Yeah, thanks. Well, look, let's stay on um, on this issue of security and prosperity and the US and, and uh, China. You've said uh, publicly a couple of times that in Australia's relationship with the United States and China, we are friends to both, ally to one. I just wonder whether in the light of uh, recent events, and they've been moving very quickly, including the uh, US National Defence Strategy and Vice President Pence's speech, is it still possible for us to sustain that line? And uh, if so, how do we do it? Well, one, I think that should certainly be our goal. Uh, Secondly, I believe it's possible. Uh, Thirdly, because you're allies with one, it does not mean that you necessarily agree with everything your ally says or does. And I think I think we live at a time where we where we need to have everyone would agree with this, a very sharp sense of our own national interests. Now, Alan, in your book, Fear of Abandonment, you said there were three big shapers of Australian foreign policy since the forties. One an alliance with a strong, secondly, deep engagement in the region, and thirdly, a commitment to multilateralism and pluralism. Now, I believe those three tenets remain equally relevant today. I would argue that the alliance with the United States is as important now as what it has ever been. That does not mean we can't be critical of the United States in terms of its trade actions in respect of China because of its potential negative impacts on ourselves. I think we need to be very frank with with China and consistent with China. We should continue to be strongly critical of China in respect of the South China Sea. We should make it very clear where the boundaries are in terms of their own engagement domestically Uh, in Australia. Equally, we should not have a knee-jerk anti-China sentiment in respect of Chinese investment. Not all infrastructure is created equally, and I do not agree that it is against Australia's national interest for there to be any Chinese investment in national infrastructure. I think there there are some parts of our national infrastructure where it is quite reasonable uh, to have Chinese investment. That has got to be a case-by-case decision. But look, coming back to your question, Alan, I think it is possible to be friends with one and allies with one now. Friends with both. Friends with both, allies with one. Uh, Now, uh, we might, over the next 50 years, find ourselves walking on a sharper barbed wire, whether we're able to continue that over the longer term? I don't know. But I think that is that is still possible today and it should uh, remain our goal. I have a question about the US itself and how worried should we be sitting here watching the pageantry of US politics. And my 
theory is that U.S. foreign policy changes only incrementally, um, despite the politics of the day, because it's anchored around fairly stable institutions, the military, the Pentagon, the State Department, the intel community, and even Congress. Um, And thus, if we here are going to worry about retrenchment or radical changes in U.S. foreign policy, we should look to the health of those institutions as a good diagnostic tool. And so I want to give an example to you, which was the State Department under the former Secretary of State Rex Tillerson um, that experienced large budget cuts, um, resignations of lots of senior diplomats, and a leader who didn't seem to have great control over what was happening. And the huge institutional loss of knowledge and human capital that resulted. Now, things have improved under Secretary Pompeo, but it's that kind of experience, perhaps with a leader who is even more hostile to the mission of the department, which I think could be alarming. So the question is, what's your evaluation of the the performance of core US institutions over the past few years under under Donald Trump? Well, let me say that it's not uncommon in English-speaking democracies to get the occasional leader with hang-ups about a foreign policy uh, department. It's happened in Australia, it's happened in the US, etc. So, uh, so be it. I'd note the same thing didn't happen in respect to the Pentagon and Mathis. Mm. In terms of continuity, I actually agree, Darren, with what you mentioned about incremental change. And what is different in respect, well, there are many things in respect of Trump, but you do need to it's 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 the crudeness and sharpness of his language that first of all and that's important because US presidents influence things through what they say and what they do and he says things in a way that is unlike any former president but let's go through china During the 2000 election, George W. Bush, as a candidate, criticised the Clinton administration and therefore Gore, his opponent, for being too soft on China and described China as a strategic competitor. In April of 2000, the US military aircraft was forced down and it looked as though we were having a bit of a shaping up. Along came 9-11. Fast forward to President Obama in Canberra in 2011. Read his speech to the Australian Parliament. If George W. Bush had have given that speech, there would have been outrage <laughs> uh, from the good commentariat in Australia on the, on, the, on the grounds that it was too sharp in respect of China, too hawkish, etc., Subsequently, Obama went up to Darwin with Prime Minister Gillard and it was on that trip that they announced the rotation of Marines through Darwin. In each election over the last 20-odd years, candidates have described China as a currency manipulator, have said that they were going to take action against Chinese stealing of intellectual property, uh, you name it. Where Trump is different is not only in the way he expresses himself, but he outrageously has actually done what he said he would do. His predecessors said it on the campaign stump, but didn't follow through. Trump has done it, which has surprised everyone. Take Russia. It was George W. Bush that famously said of Putin, 
I looked into his eyes and saw his soul. It was President Obama who in 2009 was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in part for resetting the relationship with Russia. So, you know, there are certain themes and, 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 and continuity. You could argue there's a lot more similarity between Obama and Trump than what people think. They just come at it from different perspectives. Obama believed that the US under George W. Bush had engaged in overreach. You could argue he saw the limits of US power. Trump sees the limits of US power too, but he comes at it from an entirely different perspective and expresses it uh, in different words. So I'd agree with you in terms of where where Trump is different. Uh, You take the most recent defence statement in the US where they describe China and Russia in competitive terms. Uh, And I think where the US is different today, also under Trump, is that Trump is confronting China in a way in which his predecessors didn't. And secondly, uh, uh, Trump appears... Or the, or the US under Trump, appears to have decided to actively seek to stand in the way of China, quote, becoming number one, unquote. So continuity and discontinuity are constant themes in foreign policy of any government. Institutions of state in the, in the US are in pretty good shape, despite Tillerson. Mm-hmm. Staying with Obama... Um, and here's a question about the limits of power and really whether he was correct in that judgment and Trump too, I suppose. I have a quote from an article, um, an interview he did with The Atlantic in 2016. Look, I am not of the view that, a, that human beings are inherently evil. I believe that there is more good than bad in humanity. And if you look at the trajectory of history, I am optimistic. I believe that overall humanity has become less violent, more tolerant, healthier, better fed, more empathetic, more able to manage difference, but it's hugely uneven. And what has been clear throughout the 20th and 21st centuries is that the progress we make in social order and taming our baser impulses and steadying our fears can be reversed very quickly. Social order starts breaking down if people are under profound stress. Then the default position is tribe, us versus them, a hostility toward the unfamiliar or the unknown. One of the more thoughtful critiques of the Obama administration I have heard was that it was guided too much by the first half of that quote rather than the second. In other words, that it was too passive, that Obama was too much of a believer in the end of history, that if America just got out of the way, the the arc of history was bending towards progress. And the implication of this critique is that Obama should have been more willing to wield US power than he was, Um, that the limits were not as strong as he believed them to be, and if, if he had done so, perhaps some of the disorder we see around the world right now may have been tamed sooner. Do you have a perspective uh, well, on US power like well, that? Well, first of all, it would be difficult to take issue with uh, the quote you read from Obama. Secondly, I find it difficult to take issue with your own commentary on it. And um, I think it's just too easy to say, oh, if Obama had done this, the world would have been better. I, I just think that's a bit flip. It, 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 it's, it's just a bit, a bit easy. Yes, he should never have drawn a red line in Syria and then did nothing. I think he could have been more forward-leaning in respect of, of China. But I think to suggest 
that if he had have flexed his muscles more, the world would be in better shape today. I think that's more of a political judgment for political purposes than what it is a, a hard-headed assessment. Isn't it a judgment about the limits of American power, though? Because he would have said, oh, we can't achieve that much. If yeah. I, we'll do more damage than good if we try. Yeah, I think, yeah, but successive US presidents have come up against that. I mean, I think uh, despite the fact that Iraq defines George W in most people's eyes, you look at his second term, George W's second term was entirely consistent with the traditional Republican internationalism. Since you first went to work for Bob Hawke, so for around 30 years now, you've been working closely and personally with Australia's most senior political leaders, and it's absolutely fair to say, and I've certainly seen it myself, that you've developed relationships of uh, considerable trust on both sides of the political spectrum. So I'm not going to ask you to rate the politicians or even to talk about them. As a historian, I would love to think that there were memoirs coming, Dennis, but I suspect not. Uh, I did want to ask you, however, to talk about the qualities that you think our policymakers, uh, and by that I mean the sort of the elected representatives, um, uh, need uh, to be successful in the world we've now got. Uh, Darren and I discuss here regularly. It's an increasingly complicated task. So what do they need? Uh, they need good health uh, because uh, prime ministers work incredibly hard. I don't believe there's any other job in the country which is harder. People can be as cynical as what they like about politicians but our elective representatives, we are fortunate in this country in that, by and large, our elective representatives work really hard and our ministers take their jobs really seriously. Yes, there are exceptions. Yes, you can disagree with their policies, but by and large, they take their job really seriously. So I think good health is important. Uh, I think a strong sense of the country, a strong sense of history, a strong sense of who we are as a people and the diversity of our people and a strong sense of national interest. Now, you can say, well, national interest depends upon the individual and all of that. I've got to say, I reckon all the prime ministers I've worked with, I reckon they could have been in the one NSC together. They would have made the best NSC this country has ever seen and it would have been terrific. There would have been diversity of view, differences of approach, but they would have been brilliant uh, as a group. And even where you have prime ministers who start out without a passion for Australia and the world, they develop it and they do it, they do it really, really well. I mean, you take Julia Gillard. She was criticised like hell for outrageously stating in Belgium the fact that her first passion was education. Well, how outrageous. A Prime Minister actually speaking the truth. I, I actually thought the community wanted politicians to be truthful. She was truthful and the commentariat beat her around the head for two weeks over that. Look what she went on to do. She went on to 
put in place machinery around which the Australia-China relationship is now built. She did that at the same time as developing further the relationship with Japan. We would not today have the relationship with India unless Prime Minister Gillard had taken the decision to take on the internal battle in the, uh, in the Labor Party and overturn their policy in respect of uranium sales uh, to, to India. And she gave a speech to the US Congress, which some people were outraged at because it was so friendly. Now, she did all of that. Uh, so I, I think Julia Gillard is an example of someone who came to the job by her own admittance without a strong sense of Australia and the world. But prime ministers are not dumb. And if, and if you've been sitting in the parliament for 10 years, as uh, Julia Gillard had, they do listen, they do learn. And whether it's a John Howard, whether it's a Paul Keating, a Bob Hawke, uh, a, a Kevin Rudd, a Tony Abbott, a, a, a Malcolm Turnbull, every one of our previous prime ministers, if you go through it, have made significant contributions to Australia and the world. And as I said, have them all in the one National Security Committee and we'd be world leaders. Can I ask the same question? Oh, and it'd be fun to watch. <laughs> <laughs> Can I ask then the same question with regards to foreign ministers? Gareth Evans, Alexander Downer, Stephen Smith, Kevin Rudd, Bob Carr, Julie Bishop, Maurice Payne, all very different individuals. Yeah. Does personality and style of a foreign minister affect the direction of Australian diplomacy and foreign no, policy? No, I, I think it affects the conduct of it. I don't think it particularly affects the direction of it. Around the edges, yes, but uh, not fundamentally. Well, Dennis, you've been very generous with your time. Thank you. We've just got two more questions, and they both relate to, I guess, defence policy. Uh, and this first one comes from my colleague, Andrew Carr, who's a senior lecturer here uh, at the ANU and in the Bell School. And it, it, it goes like this. Calls for some form of self-reliance in our defence policy seem to be getting more frequent. And of course, this is not the first time in Australia's history, but this time these calls seem to be coming from both uncertainty regarding US posture, but also new industrial policy. Do you see areas in which Australia should focus on some kind of self-reliance? What are they? And what areas is it a bad idea? Uh, gee, I'm not quite sure what all that means because we're spending almost 2% of GDP on defence. Uh, when you look at what we have on order and when you look at uh, how we're building the ADF, um, I, what is the argument for more self-reliance, an argument for 3% of GDP on defence? I'm just not quite sure. Industrial capacity? Mindset? A capacity issue? Uh, well, we are doing that through shipbuilding, provided you're prepared to pay the extra cost. Mm. I mean, when you decide to build all your submarines in Australia uh, from Australian steel up, then if you're prepared to pay the extra billions, then fine. You can develop your defence capability at the same time, provided you're prepared to stay the course and you're prepared to have a continuous shipbuilding mm. industry. If down the track you give up on that, then it's a lot of extra money for no outcome. So the question is whether... Uh, is self-reliance the material things you create for your defence force or it is a mindset? Mm. It's obviously a, a combination of both. And last question, a totally different uh, direction. 
Under your tenure, Defence and the Australian Defence Force made uh, gains on gender issues. Acknowledging that there is still a way to go, how do you perceive these changes have affected the culture of both organisations to date? Well, I, I can't, I can't really talk with any. Uh, I, I can't really talk with too much credibility in respect to the ADF, because I'm not a member of the ADF. I will say that the ADF leadership in the time I was there, the Chief of the Defence Force, David Hurley, when I first went there, Mark Binskin, uh, who was there when I left, and now Angus Campbell. And you look at people before them, whether it be Angus Hewson, whether it be General Cosgrove, the ADF leadership has had a commitment to on gender issues for a long time. This did not start with one speech. It's uh, One speech was possible because of what leaders had done before that. And I, I've got to say, I was enormously impressed with the way the service chiefs uh, and the ADF leadership tackled that issue consistently and determinedly, bearing in mind that they, they head up a workforce that is overwhelmingly aged between 18 and 28. Mm. You know, you get a lot of hormones. Uh, you, get, you get things that go wrong. No, no, that, that is not, uh, no way an excuse. No, but, but they're dealing with a workforce in which, in which, in which the demographics are challenging. Uh, and I think they've done a damn good job. Uh, within the public service in defence, we made some headway there, which I think people before me and Greg Moriarty now uh, have also pursued. But I think, I think with gender issues, with issues of Indigenous employment, very, very important. Very important. Uh, when I went to defence, 0.7% of the APS workforce was Indigenous. When I left, 2.1% of the uh, APS workforce was Indigenous. That did not happen by accident. However, you've got to set realistic goals. It is important not to engage in overreach. We had a program in Defence which has continued. Defence now provides employment to over 120 people with intellectual disabilities who six years ago didn't have a job. Mm. And uh, however, you've got to be committed to those things and you've got to set goals that are achievable. It's important not to be ideological about it. It's important to set outcomes, to use a word that John Howard did, practical outcomes, mm. uh, and just determinedly go for it. And I, I, I think, I think defence's achievements across the board there have been impressive, despite the fact that things continue to go wrong. A former Secretary of Defence, Rick Smith, a good mate of Alan and I, said to me when I was taking up the job, he said, look, he said, just bear in mind that given the size of the workforce, given the demographics, the chances are that, that every hour of every day, 24 by 7, there's someone doing something that you'd prefer not to know about. Dennis, thank you very much for, uh, for coming in. That was, by the way, an excellent uh, case for the mm -hmm. memoirs. 
Should really think about. Fully agree. Endorse. Publishers, get on the phone now. (laughs) Great to have you. Thanks. Well, that is all for today's episode of Australia in the World. We want to thank AAA intern Stephanie Roll, our research assistant, and Manny Bavell, our audio engineer, Martin Pierce of the Crawford School for Technical Support, Rory Stenning for composing our theme music, and last but not least, AAA CEO Melissa Conley Tyler for her support. Thank you and talk to you again soon.